together now to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 6. In the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 6, where we want to, for a little this evening, continue with this uh, passage that sets out the Lord's Prayer as uh, we've seen it. Where we find the emphasis given to secret prayer, and particularly we've reached uh, verse 9 and verse 10, we saw previously the principles for prayer that the Lord sets out that it is to be in dealing with this matter of secret or private prayer particularly because that is the context, uh, that is what the context is dealing with, that we are not to be as the hypocrites are and that we are not to be as the heathen are. And then we saw last time something of the significance that it is to our Father in heaven that we pray as those who are his people. So that we see after this manner, Jesus said, therefore pray ye, our Father who art in heaven. And we saw something of the importance of that word Father as God has revealed himself to us in the significance of that name and of all that is in it as we have seen it particularly in Jesus himself. And tonight we're coming to the three things particularly that the Lord would have us to pray concerning our Father who is in heaven. Uh, that first of all there is something that has to do with the name of our Father, that it is to be hallowed. And then secondly that it is uh, to do with the kingdom of our Father, that his kingdom is to come. And thirdly, that the will of our Father is involved so that we are seeking that his will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now we noticed already how these three elements or these three petitions, whatever word we use, are in fact directing us away from looking for anything for ourselves until we have first and foremost concentrated upon that which is proper and fitting to ascribe to God. We've seen already that we tend perhaps sometimes, especially when our hearts are burdened and full of cares and anxieties, to come in before God and to perhaps rush into these things that we ourselves know we need and sometimes even think we need. But this is what Jesus is saying when you pray, when you close your closet door, when you close yourself in with God, you begin with himself. And you seek especially for his name and for his kingdom and for his will. So we have to look at these three things for a little time this evening where we can see that in this prayer we are to promote our Father's honor. That is really what these three things amount to. And as we'll see, they are very, very closely related together. Indeed, there is a very considerable overlap uh, when we look at these three elements that in themselves. There is a very considerable overlap between the name of God and the kingdom of God and the will of God and the things that we are seeking in respect to each of them. Well, let's begin then by looking at this first of these, hallowed be thy name. Now what do we actually mean by that? When we take these words to ourselves, when we use them in our petitions, as often we do, if we want to be more than mere 
parrot fashion exercised in speaking those words, then we have to understand something of their significance and what we're asking. What are we asking when we want the name of God to be hallowed? What are we meaning initially by the name of God in itself? Well, maybe that's the best place to begin. What do we mean by the name of God? What does the Bible mean by the name of God? Well, it is not the mere labels that God has given to himself in the different terms that he has, that he has described himself by. You know that he has given himself certain names in the scripture as he has revealed himself. His name is Jehovah. His name is God. There are other names that we find. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ and so on. It is not simply the name of God in that respect though that comes into it. It's much wider than that and much deeper than that. Because the Bible tells us that the name of God is really no different to the glorious attributes of God. And way back in the Old Testament and repeatedly in the Old Testament we find that the prophets and way back to Samuel's time that God is spoken of as one who has gone out to make a Samuel put it a great name for thyself. Now you know that when you speak of someone even ordinarily in this life and speak of them and say, well, that person's really made a name for themselves. You're really saying that person has done something significant so as to draw a certain attraction to themselves so that whatever it is that they have done has actually drawn the focus of attention onto themselves. And you can say about them, that person has made a name for themselves by this action or activity or whatever it is. And that is precisely what the Bible tells us is the name of God. It is God revealing himself to us in all his glorious acts of creation but particularly of redemption. It is in that especially that these Old Testament men of God saw that this was the name of God, that this was how God made a name for himself in his great mighty works of redemption, in revealing to himself to us as a redeeming God, as a God of salvation, as a God who would bring his people to be with himself and to save them from their sins and to constitute them a peculiar, particular people, a distinct people for himself. That is the name of God. The name is equivalent, really, to the attributes that he has revealed and the different ways in which he would have us to know himself. Now you see he's saying, this is how we must pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And hallowed is an old word for sanctified or honored or glorified. These are really the same meaning when it comes to this sort of thing. Thy name be hallowed, be honored, be glorified. And that means then that when you take account of what his name signifies and stands for, and then say thy name be hallowed, that we're really asking in our prayers that God would be glorified increasingly upon the earth in all the ways in which he would have human beings to know him to honor him, to serve him, to worship him. Every single means that he has revealed that leads us to himself. 
that is opened out for us that we might know him, that we might serve him, that we might be his people. We are saying, hallowed be thy name. We are saying, Lord, let it be increasingly that thou will be known and served and honored in every single matter where thou hast revealed thyself. Not just in one or two things here and there, but in every single matter where God has made himself known to us. Now you see, that is so very different, isn't it, to the kind of context in which the Lord is anticipating we will actually live out this prayer. This is not something that is merely confined to the closet because the terms are this and not just simply the things that are spoken out in prayer secretly or publicly before God. This is something that covers our whole way of life. And it is absolutely meaningless to be in our closets and thinking of ourselves on our knees and saying, Lord, let thy name be hallowed. Let thy name be glorified. Be glorified in all the ways in which thou hast revealed thou should be glorified if we ourselves in our, in our lives are not intensely seeking and exercised about these things. It is so opposite to the spirit of the world in which Jesus would have us live as his people. This is a counter culture, if you like, to the culture of the world. We'll see that when we come to speaking of his will, that it is to be done in earth as it is in heaven. The Lord is not channeling us here into an ideal world. He is not having us anticipate these things merely when we come to glory and to be with him in heaven. He is saying now, in this life, you are to both pray for it and accompany the prayer with your practice. That God's name will be hallowed. What does that mean? In practice as well as in prayer, it means this. That you and I have to know him and to be familiar with him and to be close to him and to be learning of him and to be taught by him and to have his truth searched so that we can know more and more and more about him. If we're saying as the Bible itself saying and we must keep to the Bible that his name is really indicative of all that he has revealed of himself in his attributes. What else is that? But our coming to know himself in the glory and splendor of his being and his work. And until we come more and more to know him. And if our mind is not set upon knowing him more and more. And nearer and closer and more fully. Then we cannot, you see, meaningfully say, Hallowed be thy name. We can only say, hallowed be thy name, if we are more and more seeking to know himself increasingly, more deeply, more lovingly, more completely, more perfectly. And as we've said, it is in this life that that is to be outlived and exercised. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We are to hallow his name in the midst of such difficult circumstances. In the midst of a generation and a world that does not hold his name in honor and in the peace. 
That is where God has placed us. This is the essence of Christianity. To honor our Father. Father comes first. What does it mean then for the world in which we live? What are we seeking when we're seeking that his name be hallowed? Well, you have to think of all the different ways in which his name is not hallowed tonight and in our own day as we look around us. We've said that it doesn't simply mean the name of God as the terms that he has used to describe himself in the scripture as a, as a mere name. But we mustn't dismiss that from it either. Think first of how that name of God or the different names by which God is known how these things are so dishonored in our day. When the names of God are so frequently used but not used honorably, are used in cursing and in swearing and in blasphemy, and it is so common, and it is so common even down to the youngest children in primary school, you can hear them bringing God's name into disrepute, taking the name of the Lord in vain. Oh, friends, is our heart not burdened about this? Do we not truly see that this is directly related to what the Lord is telling us? Do we not bring this into our closets? Are we not shutting the door of our closet and saying, Concerning this, O Lord, our God, hallowed be thy name. Are we not seeking more and more that we will engage these things? We are so afraid, aren't we, of the world's opposition. Perhaps there are times when we are rightly afraid. We're afraid that our possessions may be vandalized if we challenge the world, if we challenge even young people for their swearing or for their taking of God's name in dishonor and disrepute. But this is what God has committed to us. Whatever we may or may not be able to do in practice, perhaps some of us can do that much better than others in speaking to people, in putting it across in a manner that is loving, in a manner that is biblical, in a manner that is not overly offensive or insensitive. But whatever we say about the public side of it and the practicing side of it, there can be absolutely no doubt whatsoever about the duty of all in regard to the prayerful side of it. Hallowed be thy name. And then think of the different ways in which the name of God is dishonored in all the different kinds of religion, of false religions, of differing beliefs, that have no central place for Jesus. When the name of Allah and the name of Buddha and all these other names are lumped alongside the lovely and glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ as if he was simply one of them and nothing more than that. If you read the last Presbytery newsletter, you can see in it how even the education policies that we see in our day in the immediate environment we belong to in Strathclyde region. How these things are so painful to speak about when we have to say them, that these things are an example of the very thing we're looking at tonight, where the name of God is not hallowed, where the name of Jesus is simply placed alongside or in a bundle with all these other names and these ways of salvation, where the name of our Lord is not central or significant, 
where the Christianity that bears his name is so little counted of beside other more fashionable things. These are all ways in which the name of our Lord is not hallowed. When we are seeking that his name be hallowed, all of these areas are in our view. The whole of that which God has revealed of himself in the Christian religion, in the education of our children, we've got to pass on to them what it means. And we've got to try and reach the world with what it means to hallow the name of God. And we have got to place it as an item firmly and in the forefront of our petitions. But whenever we come to God, we will never come to him without seeking that his name be found. How did he put it himself, you remember, in Isaiah and in Deuteronomy? Well, let me just take these two. It's Isaiah 42. You remember he said, I am the Lord. And in Hebrew, that's really, that's really literally saying, I am Jehovah. That is my name. My glory will I not give to another Neither my praise to graven images. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses in the name of God speaking to the people concerning their entrance into the promised land, the things that they would have to do and remember. You remember how he put it to them there respecting the name of God. This is what he said. You will not go after the other gods of the nations, of the peoples that are around about you. For the Lord... Thy God is a jealous God in the midst of thee. My friends, there are no more important words in the whole Bible than that. The Lord, our God, is a jealous God in the midst of us. He will not share your heart with another God. He will not be satisfied with a partial commitment of ourselves of our hearts, of our whole lives into his hand. He is not at all seeking of us a half-hearted devotion, a half-hearted discipleship, a half-hearted worship, a half-hearted ascription of praise and glory to him. He wants all or nothing because it is all that he is worthy of. He is a jealous God. But are we jealous for his jealousy? Are we jealous in respect to the jealousy with which God surrounds his own name, the exclusive name of God, the name of God that is so great, so glorious, so high. How can we think of that name being shared out in its glory and in its honor with anyone else that would find a place in our hearts beside him, in his place or alongside him? for his service, for his worship, for his honor, for his glory. Well, that is what he means when he says, this is how you pray. Hallowed be thy name. The hallowing of the name that is so significantly accompanied by our own resolve, by our own inward desire, by our whole bias of life, that God, Whatever comes, come what may, that God will be first. That God in our hearts will have his name hallowed. And we are seeking that increasingly 
or the world in which we live if we are true to the prayer that Christ has left us. So the name of God is the first element in it. And then he says secondly, thy kingdom come. And again we have to ask ourselves initially, what does it mean, thy kingdom come? What is this kingdom that he's speaking about? Well, we mustn't think that it is indicative of the fact that God does not now reign over all things that he has created, that God is anything less than sovereign and in total control of everything that happens. It is not that that the Lord means. It rather means his kingdom as that in which God rules in the hearts of men. Now you remember that Jesus himself spoke very significantly about this. We found it in the parables as we read in chapter 13. And very often the parables of Jesus were parables on this very subject. And you find most of them indeed to begin, the kingdom of God is like. And then there follows a parable describing something of the characteristics of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is, in a word, if we can put it in a phrase, it is the reign or the rule of God in the hearts of men. Now that came into this world in a very prominent and particular way in the coming of our Lord himself. It was when the Lord came into this world, as he put it himself, and as John the Baptist immediately before that put it, the kingdom of God is nigh. It has drawn near to you, he was saying. And so that kingdom of God is the reign of God in the hearts of men, and it has come into this world, it has interrupted the kingdoms of this world, or the things that we find in this world and its characteristics. It has come in powerfully and it has interrupted that world in the coming of Christ. The kingdom is established in principle in the coming and in the work of our Lord. And now he is saying, in prayer his people have to seek that that kingdom will come increasingly, will expand itself more and more, that God will rule more and more in the hearts of men, that the kingdoms of the world will come under the rule of God in the heart. But again, it has to begin with ourselves. And the question for us tonight is this, is it true of your heart and of your life and mine that what the world sees in us, whatever else they say, do they really say and do they really see that God is our King? That our throne, the throne of our heart, is occupied and is occupied by this Christ, this God who is brought before us as our Father in heaven, but it is our Father in heaven, this great and glorious God whom we serve and whom we seek to obey, it must be demonstrated. Where is it demonstrated? Demonstrated in our own lives, not just in prayer. It's easy enough to say in prayer, Thy kingdom come. There are many people tonight that can say this prayer from beginning to end. And their lives show little or nothing of submission to the will of God and to the rule of God. We cannot, you see, devote Christ as Lord 
from Christ as we deem. We cannot say on the one hand he is our saviour, but on the other hand say, well, he is not in total rule in my heart, in all that he says, in all that he speaks. I will be willing to obey, I will say that that is, these are the terms of his kingship. You cannot do that. Whatever people nowadays will suggest you, you cannot separate the saviourhood of Christ from the kingship of Christ. And where Christ saves from our sins, that saving of us from our sins manifests itself and manifests itself here as much as in anything else. Like we say about him every day as Thomas said to him when he revealed himself to him, my Lord and my God, thy kingdom come. More and more that our own hearts will be governed by the kingship of God. That he will be the Lord in our lives, that our whole mind, and that really is where it crosses over to the next petition that comes, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. It really amounts at this particular point to the same thing, doesn't it? A submission entirely to him, to his rule, to his will, to be ruled by him, to be depended by him, to be our king. And that means that we seek that this gospel that we love goes forth and spreads throughout the world, that this rule, that this reign of God will penetrate into the hearts of many others, that the kingdoms of the world in the way of scripture itself, as it puts it, may come to be the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That God's rule will be established in the hearts of men. Now that again is something that includes our practice as well as our prayers. That we endeavour in all the means that are possible to us to bring this emphasis of the kingship of Christ, of the Lord Christ, of God of ruling, to bear upon the world in which we live. How different it is to that world. The world is so taken up with its own will, with its own rule, with its own empires. The heart of man is taken up with its own significance, with our own puny will and our own puny name and our own puny imagined kingdoms and rules. The Christian knows and sees above that and sees above the things that you see so commonly and stress so frequently. Man is so taken up and always has been taken up with so many solutions that are either economic or political or a joint of the two or social, political, economic, social. We look throughout the world at these things, at governments trying and wrestling with the problems that nations and peoples face. How can they live at peace with one another? Where can we find lasting security? How do we know that we can get rid of our defenses, that those who are next to us will not be aggressive and will not make inroads against us? Where can we find social conditions that will improve the welfare of our peoples? How can we lift up the people that belong to us as nations? Are these not the things that politicians the world over are concerned about? But you see, the Christian sees beyond that. 
through that, above that, to the kingdom of God. Because there is no lasting happiness, no lasting security, no lasting peace, no true government of a people in the right manner without having this vision and this principle of the kingdom of God in our hearts. Without seeking that it is the gospel that makes inroads in the hearts of men so that the rule of God is established therein and so that God reigns and throughout the world men come to bow submissively to him and rulers come to acknowledge that he is the one by whom they reign and decree justice and to whom they are answerable. Isn't this what we're asking for when we're saying thy kingdom And it means also that we are praying for destruction. We are praying for destruction. What do we mean by that? It means this, that there is another kingdom that we are praying about at the same time when we say these words. The kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil. You cannot say thy kingdom come without meaning at the same time, Lord, let this kingdom of darkness be destroyed and be pulled down. Let the strongholds of Satan be truly vanquished and brought to pieces. Do we realize that we must pray against so many things? That we must pray against the evils that we see where men's hearts are captive to all kinds of horrid wickedness and excesses, whether it be in the gambling dens or the drinking dens or all other kinds of dens and the emphasis on all kinds of sin that we see in our society in the perverted behavior in all things that you look around you and see are so opposed and so offensive to the word of God. What are we saying when we say thy kingdom come? We're saying, oh Lord, put an end to these things. Do away with them. Well, that takes us back to the subject of God coming and reviving and quickening. I hope we're not getting tired of the emperor. Because that is what you see whenever God comes. Whenever there is a revival, that is what happens. God's kingdom comes. God spreads abroad with his own mighty power. This kingdom, this rule, this supremacy in the hearts of men and women and children. And you find that all or most of these vices and these iniquities and these horrid wickednesses that they are stamped out, that people actually move away from that. They say, how could we possibly have lived in these things? What were we thinking of when we lived in those vices and in these sins? I came to God. There is no other answer. No other answer to our society's problems, to our people's difficulties, to our blindness, to all that is good for us but this. Oh Lord. Thy kingdom come. Take it to the closet. Close the door behind you. 
Let this be your petition. Let this be the burden of your heart that you seek from the Lord. That his name will be found and that his kingdom will come and that the kingdom of Satan will be utterly destroyed. That God will bruise them under your feet shortly and it will be done speedily. And no more time will elapse till our children and our people are emancipated from the grip of sin. Thy kingdom come. And then finally, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now again, we ask, what is that will of God that is to be done on earth? And it doesn't obviously mean, again, what we normally call his decretive will, but rather that it means his preceptive or his revealed will. Or the difference between them is that his decretive will is his decree, his eternal decree, by which he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Everything that comes to pass, God has decreed. It is there inside an eternal decree which is immovable. But there is this revealed will, that which he has set out for us in the scriptures, that which he has set out for us as what we are to do and to be, what is pleasing to him in our life, in our character, his revealed will. And it is that particular emphasis that we find here, thy will be done. And you notice the contrast or the pattern in earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's remarkable. Here we are, and we are told, this is what we pray for, that God's will be done in earth as it is done in heaven. How is it done in heaven? How is God's will carried out in heaven? Well, we need hardly answer the question. It's obvious. Perfect. Where the minds of created beings, where the will of created beings is entirely in harmony with the will of the Creator. There was a little girl at one time in Sunday school and they were looking at the Lord's Prayer and her teacher asked her, what do you think this means? That we are to do the will of God our Father, that his will that we are to pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. She paused for a while and then she said, I think it means this, that all those who are in heaven do what God says without asking any question. Oh, how right she was. That all who are in heaven do what God says without asking any questions. No delay. No question of why. Instant. That's the pattern. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How terribly short of that we come ourselves. How indifferent sometimes we are to the will of God. To the most clearly revealed aspects of the will of God. Not just the things that we seek into scripture to find as that which God would have us to do in our lives when we are perhaps not sure of the way ahead and the decisions we should make. 
and take. But there are so many things that God has clearly said we must do and we must constantly do. But as we said this morning, how indifferent, how reluctant, how much we delay in putting into action God's will for us that is always for our good. Well, there is the pattern. And not only do we have a pattern, but we have an example. We have many examples indeed in the word of God itself of people who were demonstrable in this Christian way of doing the will of God as well as praying for the will of God to be done. But there is one supreme example and you know who he is. It is the Lord himself, the very Lord who gave us the terms of his prayer. He himself fulfilled it in all its terms, in all the manner in which he sought our prayers be set out before God. You remember where you find him particularly, where this emphasis on God's will most graphically is brought to our attention. There he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his sweat as great drops of blood falling to the ground. He is looking into the cup the cup which God his Father has given him to drink, the cup of eternal damnation that rightly belongs to his people, the cup of the death that he must die, the cup of his suffering, his woe. His human frame naturally recoils from it. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. All the earnestness and the true desire of our Lord that that cup would pass from me. If it be possible, Lord, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Have you Not my will, but thy be done. No element of disobedience. The will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. And there is the example. There is the very essence of the prayer that we are to take on our lips and to set out before God. We see it in the most difficult circumstances that any human being ever had to Peace in this world, in this earth, there is no other place where you can see such a difficulty in the will of God being done as you find it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Though he is no mere man, yet he is indeed fully and truly man. And he is bearing that cup of the agony of his soul. Where else will you find it so difficult? To do the will of God. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is the pattern, that which is done in heaven. There is the example, the heavenly one himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the pattern and the example. That is what we pray for. That is what we are committed to. As disciples of the Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And when we bring all of these things together, there is really one thing that they connect with very firmly, very clearly, just in closing. The name of God being hallowed, and being hallowed extensively and increasingly throughout the world, the kingdom of God to come, and this final matter of this emphasis on God's honor in all of these things. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy name be hallowed. What is it to which they each relate and together relate and that which will be their final and complete fulfillment? It is the return of our Lord himself. And it means this for us. But in order to come to pray this prayer meaningfully, seriously, honestly before God, we have to be in love with the return of our Lord. We have to say concerning him, however much we want the world to come under his rule and authority, even before he comes, yet still it is surely for each and all of us tonight the case that we love his appearing. And that as John in his revelation is given to see and to hear the words, Behold, I come quickly. But the echo of our hearts too will be, Even so come, Lord Jesus. You see, you have to tie the two things together. This honor of God in his name and his kingdom and his will as we've seen it, and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, to which they each and all remain. There is the question that I would leave with you tonight. The question that belongs to you and to me always. Tonight, if our Lord came, if this is the last night this world will see, or we will see in it, Will you and I rejoice at the Lord's coming? Will it be something for us, a thing that our heart has yearned for all our days since we came to know? Or is it something that still is found as unregistered in that way in our hearts? Do you love his appearing, the prospect of his coming. Does it fill you with excitement? Do you not see in it his name hallowed, his kingdom come, and his will be done on earth? It is in heaven. Lord, O oh God, we pray that thou thyself would give us to relish these things. We pray for grace that we might love thee as we ought with all our heart. For grace that we may ourselves exhibit the things that we are praying for in respect to others. And grant that we may never come into our secret place of prayer without having sought day by day for ourselves to live out the terms of our petitions in our own lives 
as we seek them for ourselves and others. And O oh Lord our God, we would indeed seek that thou would hallow thy great name, and that we might hallow it as we respect it, and that the world in which we live will come more and more under the influence of thy great name as revealed to us, and of thy kingdom and thy gospel in it, and of thy will set forth for us in the scripture. Help us, O Lord, to continuously to seek after these things, and to realize that they are given to us in this passage, that we may apply it to our own lives, and that we may find constantly that it is the burden of our hearts that thou would be honored in all that thou hast revealed of thyself. Be with us, we pray thee, in the week in which we have entered, and help us to look to thee at all times for every duty and responsibility that we have as thy people. And bless us now as we part one from the other, and may thy grace and keeping follow us. And we pray that thou thyself would guide us by thy spirit and furnish us with all that is necessary to be thy disciples in this world. Accept our prayer and our worship and cleanse all of sin for Jesus' sake. Amen.